for the shortest uh, Bible reading we've had at church. It's like uh, Askin just got in first gear and just got warmed up and he had to walk down again. But uh, I can't promise you it's going to be the shortest sermon, so my apologies. But uh, let's pray and we'll get into the book of Romans. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the joy it's been to start studying this wonderful book of Romans together, both here on a Sunday night and in our gospel teams as well. Uh, and we pray that you might help us again tonight to, uh, to grapple with it, to seek to understand it. But especially, we pray through our studies that we will be uh, amazed, for some of us for the first time, but for many of us for the thousandth time, by the wonderful fact that we are justified, we are declared right by faith in Christ alone. And so help us to learn more about that truth tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we got started in the book of Romans. Uh, So hopefully you've got your Bibles open there. As I said last week, this book of Romans is the most important document ever written. Uh, And I don't think that's an overstatement uh, because this is where we get the clearest explanation of the gospel that has ever been given. So remember that quote from Martin Luther uh, that I quoted last week. It's up on the screen again where it says, The book of Romans is our soul's daily bread and it can never be read too often or studied too much. Uh, and if I can push that analogy a little bit, Romans is chewy. Uh, it's, it's not a snack. Uh, you've actually got to switch on your brain to grapple with Romans. So I hope here on a Sunday night, I hope in gospel teams on a Wednesday night, I hope you apply yourself to get the absolute benefit out of it, to get the nourishment from it. Uh, so I really do want us to be grappling with it here in church and in gospel teams as well. But uh, just run your eye over what we looked at last week, the start of the letter, verses 1 to 15. And you remember as we looked at that, what we did was we set the scene. So we met the Apostle Paul, first of all. Uh, We got this great summary of the gospel. We heard how it is the good news and it is all about Jesus. And in particular, how Jesus has been declared by God to be the King. Uh, It is God's declaration that Jesus is his son. Uh, And we also got an insight into how the Apostle Paul just couldn't hold himself back from preaching the gospel to everyone. So go with me to the end of uh, last week's passage, verses 14 and 15. Do you remember how Paul said he has this obligation to tell people the gospel? It's like, I cannot do anything other than tell people the gospel. When you've got this good news, you, you owe a debt to all other people to tell them. But I love the way that in verse 15, the obligation turns into eagerness. Because I want to tell you this message. That's the point uh, that Paul was making at the end of last week. So that then all leads into these couple of verses we're looking at tonight. Verses 16 and 17. And really they are the summary statement of the whole book. So the rest of the book of Romans is in many ways unpacking what we're looking at tonight in verses 16 and 17. So if you think about it, if Romans is the most important book ever written, then these two verses are pretty close to the most important verses ever written. That's how great they are. And that's why we're only looking at this tiny section tonight, because it is that important. So come with me. Let's get into it. And I've called it all, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because that is the big point Paul is making. So remember, he's just talked about how eager he is to preach the gospel. And then he says, why? Look at verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The reason I am eager to tell people the good news is because I'm not ashamed of it. If you want to put it in the positive, I am so proud of this message. I just want to preach it to everyone. So the obvious thing to then ask is, well, why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Why would you be ashamed to tell people this good news? Why does he have to say this? Well, it's because the message of the gospel is easy to be ashamed of. Now, just think about it for a moment. The good news about Jesus 
tells us something about ourselves. What does it tell us about ourselves? To explain the good news of Jesus, you need to come to understand that you and I are sinners. That's actually part of the gospel. It tells us we are not good enough for God. We need salvation. Uh, People do not like hearing that. Most people want to think they're actually pretty good. Most people want to think they don't need saving. They sort of think what religion should tell them is just sort of how to pull their socks up and be a, a better person. People like a religion where they can have a bit of mystery, hear some good things, and then go and get on with life for the rest of their week. In many ways, I think that's why people love last night, you know, the coronation service and all that, because it's religion how we like it, a bit mysterious, a bit out there, but it makes no call on you. The gospel says... We are sinners in need of a saviour. So it is a hard message to share with people. Even when you know it's true, it's hard to share a message that you know might offend the person you're sharing it with. I remember a few years back, a person came to church for a while. They weren't a Christian, but they liked church and they were coming along, they were enjoying it. After a few weeks, they thought they'd give me some advice on how we could do a better job here at church. Uh, And they said, Phil, I love your preaching, but you've got to stop all this talk about sin. And you've got to stop all all this talk about the death of Jesus all the time. You know, you you could preach a much more positive message and more people would come and more people would want to hear it. Clearly, I had not explained the message well enough to that person yet. See, more than that, the king we tell people about in our gospel, our Lord Jesus, what is the most important thing he did? What was his claim to fame? That he was crucified. That he was dragged out, helpless and naked, and nailed to a cross with criminals on either side of him. What sort of a king is that? Who could be proud of a king like that? See, when Paul and the other first Christians preached that this crucified Jew was the king of the universe, people laughed at them. People said, what a foolish message. Are you really trying to persuade us with that? I've probably shown you this before, but if you look on the screen, this is a a piece of graffiti they found from the third century. So a couple of hundred years after the gospel was first being preached. If we actually go to the next slide, it sort of shows it more clearly what it is. And what it is, is a man up there looking at a donkey on a cross. And the words below it says, Alexamenos worships his God. And you can tell what was happening there. Alexamenos had become a Christian. And so his mate wanted to mock him. And he said, well, this is is what it is to be a Christian. You're worshipping a donkey. You're worshipping an ass, a, a, a fool. Paul felt that sort of mockery. He felt this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. That's basically the equivalent of the opinion papers in the newspapers today. That graffiti. If we can take that off. Braden, you see, the thing is, we can be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel today, just like Paul was. Many people think our gospel is foolishness. How can you believe that a man who lived 2,000 years ago has the answers to all the problems of the world? How can you believe that a man rose from the dead? I think 20 years ago, that's what people would sort of make fun of or mock about the gospel, if you like. But today, I think it's more, how can you believe what God's word says about morality? How can you believe what God's word says about ethics? Aren't Christians intolerant? It's easy to be ashamed of the gospel when our world wants to mock it all the time. So it's easy to stay quiet. It's easy as a Christian to know it's true, to absolutely believe it's true, but not talk about it and not draw attention to the fact that we are a follower of Christ. But Paul says, I am not ashamed 
of the gospel. So why can he say that? Well, in these two verses, he gives us four connected reasons that flow out of each other for why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Firstly, and really the heading, because the gospel is God's power to save. Come with me, look to verse 16. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation. See, this message about a crucified Jew might seem weak. It might seem foolish, but it is actually the most powerful thing in the world. The word in the Greek language for power there is dunamis, and it's where they got the English word dynamite from. Now, now Paul did not have in his mind the idea that it's dynamite, but I love the image this picture that the gospel is the the dynamite that's how powerful it is that God uses to save us from our sin and judgment the message of Jesus dying on the cross that seems weak and foolish it's actually the most powerful thing in the world it's how God blows away our sin and deals with our guilt so that we can be saved so Paul says how on earth could I ever be ashamed of the message that is actually God's power for salvation more than that point two The gospel is God's power to save everyone who believes. Look at verse 16 again. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. See, the gospel is wonderful. The gospel is something not to be ashamed of because it is powerful enough to save everyone, not just Jews, Not just religious people, not just smart people. It is powerful to save everyone. Do you know, this is actually one of the biggest problems the first century hearers, the people back when Paul was preaching, this is one of the biggest problems they had with the gospel. The fact that it was universal. The fact that it wasn't exclusive enough for them. This is incredible irony if you think about it, given that people today attack the gospel because it's too exclusive as it claims to be the truth. But back then, the Jewish people said, no, no, it's too easy. It's too easy. They should have to become Jews like us. They should have to get circumcised. They should have to obey the whole Old Testament law. The Greeks said, no, 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 too simple. Only smart people should be able to understand God's revelation. It should be for people of greater intellect and and greater wisdom. Sometimes I think Christians today seem to think it should only be for people who are respectable and, and who've lived a good life. For moral people. But Paul says, no, the gospel is powerful to save all people everywhere. For smart people and not so smart people. For for people from a religious background, for people with with no religious background, for people who society loves and thinks are, are great, and society, people who society shuns. God does not care if you are smart, not so smart, white, black, Jew, Gentile. He doesn't care. His gospel is powerful to save everyone. But, and this is what our modern world hates, it is for everyone who believes. The gospel is universally available, but not everyone accepts it. That is the one catch, if you like. But if you think of it, it's not really a catch, is it? Because all God asks is that we believe and trust in the message he has given us about his son. The wonder of the gospel is anyone who turns and trusts in Jesus will be saved. But then Paul throws in a little comment there that just seems a bit out of place. Come with me, the end of verse 16. If the gospel is powerful for everyone who believes, what does he mean when he then says, first to the Jew and also to the Greek? What does that mean? If the gospel is universal, if it's for all people who believe, in what sense are the Jews first? Some people think he's just making a historical point. 
that it was the Jews that first got to hear it. And so that's all he's making. The gospel went first to the Jews and then it came to the Gentiles. Seems strange to me in his his great summary statement that he'd just be making that little point. I think it's more than that. Remember I said these two verses are what the rest of the book is unpacking? Well, he's introducing an idea here. We're going to have to wait for chapter 9 to think about more. And that's going to take a while if we do it every two verses, but we'll go a bit quicker from next week. See, the problem for the early church was... As it got more and more diverse, which was wonderful, there was a danger that all the Gentiles coming in would forget that God still loved his Old Testament people, the Jews. There was a danger that people would start to think, the Jews have had their chance, now the gospel is for all of us, let's ignore them. But Paul was very keen in the early church to remind the Gentile Christians, like most of us, that God has not forgotten about his promises. It's actually really important reminds us God keeps his word and he has made promises to his Old Testament people. God still desires that they would come to know their Messiah. We're going to explore that more when we get to chapter 9. Don't get distracted by it tonight. Because the point of verse 16 is to explain why we should not be ashamed to proclaim the gospel. And the reason is because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Now at this point, I want to pause and I want to ask a question we need to think about to make sense of verse 17, our second verse for tonight. And that is, what do we need saving from? I think if you ask most people in our world, if you said to them, hey, the gospel is God's power for salvation, they'd say, so what? I don't care because I don't think I need saving. What, what do I need saving from? I'm not in any danger. Why do we need God's power for salvation? And for that, to understand that, we need to talk about the righteousness of God. Now, understanding this is the key to understanding the Christian gospel, and the next four chapters of Romans are going to be unpacking this for us. So we're only sort of dipping our toes in tonight. But can I ask you, come with me on this, it'll stretch your brain a little late on a Sunday evening, but there is nothing more important to think about than this topic. What do we mean when we say that God is righteous? Think about it for a moment, try and define it in your head. What, what do we mean when we say that God is righteous? We mean that unlike us, God is holy. Unlike us, God is without sin. We mean that unlike us, God is faithful. When God says something, he does it. He keeps his word. Not most of the time, like like the best of us, all of the time. And and so that righteousness, that holiness, that sinlessness, that that truthfulness, that faithfulness, they all make up the righteousness of God. That is just part of the fundamental essence of who God is. God is righteous. He, He cannot be anything else. And that is wonderful, if you think about it. That is wonderful. Who wants an unrighteous God? Who wants a God whose, whose word you cannot trust? We, we love this about God. We sing, sing hymns about the righteousness of God. We praise him for it. But it is also a massive problem for us because we are not righteous. We are sinners. And the righteous God has promised, remember righteousness means he keeps his word, The righteous God has said the wages of sin is death and judgment. So God, in his righteousness, has declared he must punish all sin. This is why God's righteousness is such a problem for us. Because God's righteousness demands that you be righteous, but you're not. And I'm not. And because we're not, because we're sinners, it demands our judgment. 
That is why we need saving. We need saving from God because God is righteous and we are not. But if you remember, we've just read in verse 16, all those who believe can be saved. So how can your belief save you? Think about it. How can your faith save you? Just because I believe in Jesus doesn't change the fact I'm not righteous. Just because I believe in Jesus doesn't change the fact that I'm a sinner. Well, that is why verse 17 is the most beautiful sentence ever written. Come with me. And the heading, third heading. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Go back to the start of verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... Because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for or because in it God's righteousness is revealed. Now what does that mean and why is it so wonderful? He doesn't go into all the details here, we've got the next four chapters for exploring that over the next few weeks. But I'm going to expand on it here to get us ready. What it means is that through Jesus, God has made a way to deal with our sin and make us right with him. Unrighteous people like us can become righteous in God's eyes, but not by anything we do, not by pulling up our socks and being more moral or being more religious, not by making ourselves righteous, but just by receiving the righteousness of God as a free gift. This is the wonderful doctrine that we're going to see spelled out in chapters 3 and 4. I can't wait till we get there in a couple of weeks. And it's the doctrine we call justification by faith. I want you through this series on Romans in your gospel teams on a Sunday night to write down some of these key words and remember them and, and, and talk about them. This is about justification by faith. And what that means is God declares us to be righteous. God puts his righteousness onto us. At the same time, he takes our sin and deals with it. And of course, we know that he does that through Jesus. The great exchange where Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He takes the punishment that our sin and God's righteousness demands. And then he gives us his righteousness in return. That is how God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. As I said before, the English word we've come to translate this as is justification. And I want you to write that word down and I want you to remember it. To be justified means to be declared righteous. You don't become righteous in that sense, you're still a sinner. But God declares you to be righteous. It's a legal word, it means to be called innocent, to be declared innocent. It doesn't mean you are righteous, we're still sinners, but God forgives us our sin and gives us the gift of his righteousness. God looks at us and sees someone who is righteous. The Bible has all sorts of metaphors and all sorts of word pictures to help us understand this. I think the most vivid is that, that our dirty clothes are, are, are taken off us and God clothes us in white. God looks at us and sees us as righteous. Some people remember it like this, to be justified means that God looks at us just as if we never sinned. Just as if we never sinned. That is why the gospel is so wonderful. Because the gospel is that wonderful gift of God's righteousness revealed and given to sinners like me and you. But of course, that brings us to our final point. 
How do we receive that gift of God's righteousness? It's actually a repeated point. He's already said it in verse 16. And my heading, my final heading is, it's all by faith. As I say, I've already seen this. Verse 16 said, God's salvation is available to everyone who believes. But now he stresses it again. Look at verse 17. He says, for in it, the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What does he mean there when he says it's revealed from faith to faith? I think he wants us to see it is faith from beginning to end. It's not like you start with faith and then you move on to something else. It is faith from beginning to end and has been that way from the beginning of history. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. David believed God and he was declared righteous. All through the Old Testament, it's been exactly the same. Faith is the key. We are justified. We are declared right with God by grace alone. It is a free gift of God and we receive it through faith alone. We come to God empty-handed. We offer him nothing and then we just accept the gift of his righteousness by faith alone. And to make the point, Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 which says the righteous will live by faith. Now be honest, who has read the prophet Habakkuk recently? Hey, someone has, there you go. A couple of hands have read the prophet Habakkuk recently. Do you know, in 20 years I've preached Romans three times, I've never, I've never preached Habakkuk, so maybe I need to do that next year, who knows. But Habakkuk was writing hundreds of years before Jesus. He's writing hundreds of years before Jesus. It was a time when God's people were being oppressed and abused uh, and God promised a time in the future when the earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the other famous verse from Habakkuk. We sing it in songs sometimes. But God also spoke to the people through Habakkuk and he said, in the meantime, the righteous will live by faith. To be righteous is to keep trusting God and his promises. And that is the case right throughout history, even back in Habakkuk's time. And so Paul quotes him and he says, it's the same for us. We live by faith. We receive the gift of God's righteousness by faith. And then we continue to trust in Christ, living by faith until he returns. Have I said that word faith enough? The point I want you to get is I want it drummed in your head. Faith is the key. You are justified. You are declared right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone. This is that truth we sing about every week. My favourite hymn. Rock of Ages, we sang it a couple of weeks ago. And you know that verse in Rock of Ages, I've got it on the screen, where he says, nothing in my hand I bring. See, that's making the point. That is what faith is, to come empty-handed to God and just accept the gift of his righteousness. You don't offer anything to God. All you do is receive what he offers you. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless Look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you I cry. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That is about how we receive the gift of righteousness by faith in Jesus. See, the minute you start thinking you're good enough for God, you've lost the gospel. Worse than that, you are lost. The minute you start thinking somehow God should be impressed by what you do, you have lost the gospel. Now, you see, the gospel says you are saved by faith alone. If we are judged by God on the basis of our righteousness, we have no hope. 
We need his righteousness. Faith is the key. Faith alone, in Christ alone. I pray that you know that wonderful truth. If you don't know that wonderful truth, come and talk to me afterwards. I want to talk to you about it. I pray that over the next few weeks, as we plummet depths in the book of Romans, you will come to know it even better. And I pray there's the news, there's the centre of your life. I pray there's the news that you get out of bed every morning and thank God for. That even though I am not righteous, even though I do not deserve it, you have given me righteousness by faith. As we close, what are we to do with this? Two very simple things. The first, believe. There's the application for tonight. Have faith. By the way, those words are all interchangeable. Belief, faith, trust, they all mean the same thing. I think trust is the best English word we've got for it. Receive that gift of God's righteousness by trusting in Christ. You are not made righteous by anything else, so trust in Jesus and keep trusting Jesus from faith to faith. And then secondly, do not be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is God's power for salvation for all who believe. Never forget that. Do not be ashamed of it. Don't stay quiet about it. We have the most wonderful message ever. We have the most powerful message ever. So like Paul, we should be eager to share it with anyone who will listen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel. We thank you that even though we are not righteous, that you offer us the gift of righteousness, which we receive by faith alone. And so, Father, we thank you for that wonderful news. But more than that, we pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but instead we would see it for what it is, your power for salvation, and we would offer it to anyone who would listen. In Jesus' name, amen.